Father, we pray that you would open our eyes now as we study your word, as we ask that you, by your spirit, would illumine us and apply it to our lives. We pray that you might hear us speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You'll be glad to know that we have plenty of time this morning. The clock up here on the pulpit says it's 1021. So I will let you go before noon, I promise you. I've never been much for giving things up for Lent. It always seemed to me that if something was good, you shouldn't have to give it up. And if something was bad, you should give it up all the time, not just for a few weeks before Easter. That being said, there's been a long tradition in some branches of the Christian church to devote the 40 days before Easter to a time of repentance, self-denial, ministries of mercy, and recommitment to living for Christ. For many people, however, this has been reduced and trivialized into just giving up something for Lent. I'm going to get rid of the ladybug now. There we go. People who give up things for Lent usually give up things like pizza and ice cream or chocolate. If I were to give up something for Lent, I know what it would have to be, onion rings. I love onion rings. My doctor tells me that I shouldn't eat them very often, or really at all, but now and then I do indulge. My favorite kind of onion rings have a real thin breading on them, and and they're not greasy, they're kind of crispy. There's a restaurant in Charlotte that gets them just right. So I guess you could say that I gave up my favorite onion rings to come and serve you here at HBC. I wanted to begin with something so trivial because I want to draw a contrast with a subject that is very serious. I want to talk with you this morning about real sacrifices. I want to talk with you about suffering for Christ. I know a little bit about suffering, but it's mostly just some disappointments along the way and a few people who didn't treat me too well. I don't really know that much about suffering. I want to thank you all for your kindness to me during the time that my dad was declining with Alzheimer's disease. God was merciful, though, in that my dad never suffered much physical pain. I I certainly never thought that helping to take care of him in his final months was any kind of a burden. There are a few things you have to get used to, but... Before long, it's not that different from taking care of a child, except that a young child can't watch baseball with you and can't tell you stories about his days in the Navy. There is an important difference, though. With a child, you get to see them learn something new every week, 
sometimes every day. With an Alzheimer's patient, every month they gradually lose the ability to do things they've done since childhood. And you try your best not to make them feel too bad about this, but you know that they do. My dad didn't like for people to have to do so much for him. And I know that this is how he suffered. There are, of course, Christians in many countries who suffer for their faith. I understand that there were more martyrs in the 20th century than at any time in history. The 21st will probably be no different. But we don't experience that kind of persecution very much here in this country. In the world that most of us live in, about the worst thing that can happen to you is to lose a child. I've tried to minister several times over the years to families who have lost children, and I think you eventually get on with your life, but you you never get over it. I remember when our daughter Amy was born. She was a beautiful baby. And when her hair grew out, it was all curly and almost blonde. And everywhere we went, people said, she looks just like Shirley Temple. I think one day Amy finally said, who is Shirley Temple? And she was just a happy baby and really easy to take care of. And I figured that people must have thought that Lisa and I were really good parents to have such a sweet and happy little girl. And I can remember praying to God many times. God, please don't let anything bad happen to my little girl. I think I can take just about anything else. But I don't know what I would do if I lost my little girl. Some people lose their faith when something like that happens. But God never put me through that test. Maybe some of you or someone you know have been there, though. Sadly, Lisa and I know of another couple who recently did lose a daughter named Amy Powell. She was of the very same age as our daughter. And she taught fourth grade at South Lake Christian Academy where Lisa taught. And even though Lisa taught high school in another building, they got to know each other because their mail would get mixed up and people would wonder if this was our Amy. This past January, this sweet young woman died in a head-on car accident one morning on her way to work. She was hit by a 19-year-old young man whose car crossed over into her lane. He can't remember what happened, but the police determined that neither alcohol nor texting were were factors in the accident. This Amy Powell's parents were missionaries in Taiwan, our missionaries in Taiwan, 
So they had to fly halfway around the world to come back for a funeral. I try to imagine what that flight must have been like. But when they landed in Charlotte, the first thing the father wanted to do was to go see the young man whose car had hit his daughter and taken her life. He wanted him to know that they didn't hold it against him and that they had no bitterness towards him. Another day, he and his wife went to the school to meet with and comfort the children in their daughter's fourth grade class. And then this Amy Powell's father spoke at her funeral. And he recalled many of the things that had made his daughter so special. And then he explained that he used to call her Princess. And that when they had a second daughter, Amy became Princess One. So when she was little and they put her to bed every night, he would say to his daughter, Good night, Princess One. I'll see you in the morning. And so as he was concluding his remarks at her funeral, this father said he wanted to say it one more time. Good night, Princess One. I'll see you in the morning. I don't know how I would have handled a trial like that. But the father of this Amy Powell didn't lose his faith when he lost his daughter. I printed a quote in your bulletin from an article on suffering that I read in the New Dictionary of Theology. down at the bottom of the page. Some modern presentations of the gospel leave little room for suffering as an aspect of the Christian life. Toleration of religious diversity together with materialism, prosperity, and medical sophistication that encourages an analgesic mentality in the West have conditioned many evangelicals to regard most suffering as an intrusion on the tranquil life that they feel is their God-given due. I think that this author has it right. Most of us reject the health and wealth gospel, but many times we still cling unconsciously to the idea that Christianity should be comfortable and not too demanding. After all, doesn't God want us to be happy? In stark contrast to this is passage after passage in the Bible that call us to be faithful in suffering. In fact, there are many places where we're challenged to share in Christ's sufferings. Romans 8:17 says, "The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13 say, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then 1 Peter 2.21, which we read earlier, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. There's a lot that can be said about why we experience suffering, and I can't begin to say it all in one sermon. As I prepared for this message, I watched a 23-year-old video by a young preacher who spoke of seven reasons why Christians go through suffering. I look a lot different today, but my views haven't changed. This morning, however, as we approach Easter, I just want to focus on the last point of that sermon, the seventh point, and that is that Christ suffered and died for us, so we should be ready to suffer with and for him. Christ suffered and died on the cross for our sins. Peter writes, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We're sinners. We were straying like lost sheep. We were without hope. We needed to be rescued. We needed a shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. And that's what Jesus did. In Isaiah we read, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Several years ago, I saw The Passion of the Christ, which was produced and directed by Mel Gibson. And uh, you've probably seen it. It's a very graphic and powerful presentation of the physical sufferings of Christ from the time of his arrest through his death on the cross. I just saw it that one time. I've never seen it again. 
Maybe I will one day, but it's just so difficult to watch. And keep in mind that a movie or a passion play, no matter how graphic it is, can only portray the physical suffering of Christ. There is no way to show the full suffering that Jesus experienced as the Father poured out his judgment on sinners, on his only son. So I agree with R.C. Sproul when he writes, and this quote's in your bulletin as well, no one was ever called by God to greater suffering than that suffering to which God called his only son. Our Savior was a suffering Savior. He went before us into the uncharted land of agony and death, He went where no man is called to go. His father gave him a cup to drink that will never touch our lips. We will not ever be asked of God to endure anything comparable to the distress Christ took upon himself. Wherever God calls us to go, whatever he summons us to endure will fall far short of what Jesus experienced. That's what Christ had to endure in order to atone for our sins and secure our salvation. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Christ is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way just like we are and yet without sin. And we take great comfort from that. But when it comes to suffering, Christ did not merely suffer in every respect the same way that we do. He suffered more than we have ever imagined. And he does not share in our sufferings. He calls us to share in his suffering. As Matthew Henry writes, he suffered for the redemption of the church. We suffer on other accounts. For we do but slightly taste that cup of affliction of which Christ first drank deeply. That's why I don't think we honor Christ very much by giving up something trivial like pizza or ice cream or chocolate or onion rings for Lent. There are sins we ought to repent of. There are sinful habits we ought to break. And forsake. There are broken relationships we ought to try to restore. There are serious needs that we ought to meet. There is a life changing gospel that we ought to proclaim. And yes, sometimes there is suffering that we're called to endure. But let's not give up something trivial to honor a Savior who is. Giving it, given his everything for us. So since Christ suffered and died on the cross for us, we should be ready to suffer with and for him. I want you to know that I understand that sometimes God disciplines us as a loving father. 
Sometimes we just experience the consequences of our own sin. Sometimes he uses trials to teach us or suffering to refine us and make us more like he wants us to be. And at all times, God is sovereign and he promises to work all things together for good for those who love the Lord. But the good in Romans 8.28 must mean more than just our personal comfort and happiness. Sometimes that good includes suffering for the glory of God and for our testimony for Christ and for the cause of the gospel. I think it's something like the way most of us feel about our country. We love America, and we're glad that we live in a free country. We get to elect our own leaders and can pretty much do whatever we want to do with our lives. But what has made this freedom possible are the sacrifices of millions of men and and now women in the service of our country. Some of them have made the ultimate sacrifice. And so it turns out that freedom really isn't so free after all. It's actually very costly. So who do you think loves their country the most? Is it those who are really thankful and take full advantage of all the freedoms we have and the opportunities we have to enjoy this life and enjoy this country? Or is it those who heed the call to serve and are willing to sacrifice, if necessary, to keep our country strong and free. Who loves it the most? Now, as Christians, we know that we're sinners who've been saved by grace alone. Alone, There is nothing we can do to earn our salvation. And as Augustus Toplady wrote in Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We're saved by grace alone. But in another great hymn, we also sing, Must Jesus bear the cross alone? And all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone. There's a cross for me. The cross we take up as believers is not suffering for the sins of the world. Only Christ could do that. But we are called to follow his example and to take up the cross of service and self-denial and sacrifice and sometimes suffering in Jesus' name. John Piper puts it this way. It is true that we should bear testimony to God's goodness by receiving his good gifts with thanksgiving. But for many Christians, this has become the only way they see their lifestyles glorifying God. God has been good to give them so much. Therefore, the way to witness to the reality of God is to take and be thankful. But even though it is true that we should thankfully enjoy what we have, What is clear from the New Testament is that suffering with joy, not gratitude and wealth, 
is the way the worth of Jesus shines most brightly. You cannot show the preciousness of a person by being happy with his gifts. Ingratitude will certainly prove that the giver is not loved, but gratitude for gifts does not prove that the giver is precious. What proves that the giver is precious is the glad-hearted readiness to leave all his gifts to be with him. Therefore, joy and suffering for Christ's sake makes the supremacy of God shine more clearly than all of our gratitude for wealth. In Acts 5, we read a story about an incident that occurred in the early days of the church when Peter and the apostles were brought before the Jewish council and they were sternly warned not to speak in the name of Jesus. They had already been put in prison once and some of the Jewish leaders wanted to kill them. But in the end, after listening to, listening to Gamaliel's advice, the council decided instead to give them a beating. I decided not to say just a beating. I don't think any of us have ever had a beating, so I'm not going to call it just a beating. But they warned them not to speak in Jesus' name, and they beat them. How would you feel if that had been you? They had been put in prison, they had been beaten, and their very lives were in danger. But in Acts 5, 41 and 42, we read that after all this, Peter and the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And they didn't stop preaching. Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The apostles Paul's experience was no different. And uh, we read in Philippians chapter 3, his testimony. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And note this, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Michael Card tells a story about a 
Maasai warrior named Joseph who came to Christ and suffered greatly for his faith. One day, Joseph, who was walking along one of those hot, dirty African roads, met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was to return to his own village and share that same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the, while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole, and there, after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up. He wondered about the hostile reception he had received from people he had known all his life. He decided he must have left something out or told the story of Jesus incorrectly. After rehearsing the message he had first heard, he decided to go back and share his faith once more. So Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God, he pleaded. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the, while the women beat him, reopening wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second one was a miracle. And again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back. He returned to the small village. And this time, they attacked him before he even had a chance to open his mouth. And as they flogged him for the third and probably the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ, the Lord. And before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time, he awoke in his own bed. And the ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. My friends, you and I will probably never have an experience like this man, Joseph. We will never be put in prison or beaten like Peter and the apostles. We will never suffer the loss of all things as did the Apostle Paul in his pursuit of a deeper knowledge of Christ and faithful service to him. But God is calling you to serve. And sooner or later, you and I may also be called to suffer for his sake. And when that happens, I hope that we will remember that Jesus is not only our Savior, he is also our supreme example. He has called us 
to follow in his footsteps and to be willing, if necessary, to share in his suffering. Let us pray. Father in heaven, this is a very serious subject. And it's one that I am ill-prepared to talk about, and most of us are ill-prepared to talk about. And so much of the message that is preached, particularly on television and popular media, is come to Jesus and your life will be abundant and fulfilled. And that's true. But it's also true that Jesus gave his all for us. That he bore our sins on the cross so that we might not perish, but that whoever believes in him would have everlasting life. So my prayer this morning is, if there are those here this morning, if you're here this morning, and you have yet to give your life to Christ, think about what he's done. Think about what he's suffered to purchase our salvation. And if you are a believer... Remember the call. Sometimes we're called to share in Christ's sufferings. We follow a Savior, a Master who suffered. And sometimes we're called to walk and follow Him into the paths of suffering. Help us be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.